It's Monday, September 6th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Texas now has the most restrictive abortion law in the country, as the Supreme Court declined to block the law from being implemented. The law bans abortions after a fetal heartbeat can be detected, about six weeks into pregnancy, and before many women even realize they're pregnant. What's more, the law lets individual citizens sue against abortion providers. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, joins us for more on this law, how the U.S. plans to run diplomacy in Afghanistan, and the Gavin Newsom recall is just over a week away. Next, the recent flip-flop from OnlyFans on whether they would ban sexually explicit content has led competitors to ramp up their efforts to steal content creators and subscribers. There's a huge financial opportunity to get in the game as users spent $2.3 billion in 2020 on the platform. OnlyFans might have changed the game for adult content forever, and now other platforms are striking while they see weakness. Will Yakowitz, staff writer at Forbes, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I mean, the purpose of this bill is to get to the very center of the issue, which is that this is a human question. And the fact of the matter is that every abortion ends a human life. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Last week, we saw Texas become the state with the most restrictive abortion law in the nation. The Supreme Court declined to block that law from uh, being implemented. And uh, it basically says that an abortion can't be done if they detect a, any fetal cardiac activity. Basically, if, you, if there's a heartbeat going, you can't do it. That could come as early as six weeks. And you know, a lot of people say that's before a woman may even realize that she's pregnant. So, Ginger, help us walk through what's going on. Let's let's start off with what the Supreme Court action was, and then we'll get into some things in the bill, because there's a lot of interesting things happening there. This is a, a novel approach to try to outlaw abortion, uh, different from other laws that just outlaw, outlaw it outright. Um, and, and what we saw the Supreme Court do was there's been a legal challenge to this law, a claim by opponents that it doesn't, uh, it violates Roe v. Wade, the provisions of Roe v. Wade that uh, most people know is what allows abortion to be legal in the United States. Um, a lower court um, said that they would not block the implementation of the law while it's litigated in the courts. And the opponents had asked the Supreme Court not to allow this law to go into effect, saying that it was so restrictive, it violated Roe v. Wade, and it should be put on hold until they can finish with the lawsuits. And the court said no, they were not going to put this law on hold. They were going to allow it to go into effect. And really, it was tipping their hand. It was a sign from the court that they are likely to be willing to pull back some of the protections that currently exist under the Roe v. Wade precedent. And that that means that when this case or another case that has to do with the Mississippi law ultimately make their way through the Supreme Court, we could expect them to pull back some of those Roe v. Wade protections and allow states to even limit or outlaw abortion. The vote was five to four from the Supreme Court. Justice Sotomayor said that the decision was stunning and she was very forceful in what she was saying. She said that, you know, this is flagrantly unconstitutional and it's engineered to prohibit women from exercising their constitutional rights to get the abortion. So that's how the Supreme Court kind of ruled on that. Let's talk about what's actually in the bill, because as I mentioned, there's some interesting things going on. It basically allows for private citizens to sue abortion clinics 
anybody that might have helped a woman get an abortion. So if you drove somebody, let's say you're a family member and you drove a woman to an abortion clinic, you could also be sued. So this is like this weird angle where it puts it on private citizens to be the ones suing others. Yeah, I heard someone today refer to it as an abortion bounty, essentially, putting private citizens in charge of executing this. And part of that is meant to try to get around some of the existing prohibitions, some of the previous court rulings by saying, instead of making it against the law in a crime where police or the government is going to go figure out if you've done something wrong, then they would essentially allow someone to sue you. So it's a tort. It's the same way as if someone had done something to injure or harm you in another way. This just allows individuals to do it. And it's really sort of a a more novel legal approach to this. It's not something we've really seen before. And I have to imagine that, uh, especially if it's allowed to survive, we're going to see other states replicating it on abortion. And then I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see other states trying to take the same approach to other things they want to outlaw and they've been unable to criminalize. And, you know, for abortion providers and and supporters of that, I think one of the penalties is $10,000 if you're successful And obviously, you know, a bunch of other stuff. So they're basically saying, you know, we're crippled in all this. If we get a bunch of lawsuits, that's going to effectively stop all of it. And for women in Texas, they said that uh, I guess 85 to 90 percent of women that need an abortion right now in Texas are at least six weeks pregnant already. So they effectively can't go. And if they want to go anywhere close, Louisiana is the closest place. But obviously, we know there's all sorts of flooding and the after effects of Hurricane Ina. So it's definitely a tough situation. We have a great story from uh, my colleague Adam Edelman about New Mexico. We've got people going to New Mexico from the western part of Texas um, because it's got much more liberal access than we see in Louisiana. So lots of issues um, with people getting it. And, and, and you really, when you think about it, if, if you can afford to drive or fly to another state and maybe have someone take care of your other children and still pay for everything you're going to need in that state. It's really, um, this is something that's going to affect poor women much yeah. more than, than upper class or middle class women. There's still a long road ahead for this, right? It's going to be worked through the courts. It's, it'll probably eventually come back to the Supreme Court, right? I think we will see this law come back to the Supreme Court. It could, uh, by the time it gets there, be rolled in with laws from other states. It would not surprise me if this was um, a a multi-state case by the time it winds its way back. But this is not over. I I also wouldn't be surprised if the court has some issues with the way that they did it. They've put a novel tort structure. Constitutionally, you have to have some damage to to argue a a civil suit. And I don't know that you can really assert that someone who drove someone else to an abortion uh, caused you much damage. So um, it'll have a lot of legal scrutiny left to go. Totally. Let's uh, talk a little bit about Afghanistan. Obviously, the military is out of there. Uh, It is now a State Department diplomatic mission to take the rest of the people out out of there, Americans and other Afghans, but also just how we run diplomacy there in that country without having a presence on the ground. What is that going to be looking like? You know, Afghanistan is a big wild card for the United States, I think really for the next several years. Uh, There was this press conference we saw with Defense Secretary Austin asking him earlier last or late mid last week whether or not he could foresee the U.S. and the Taliban having um, relations going forward. His answer was no, but they didn't rule out the possibility that we're going to see that cooperation. But we are not going to have an embassy there. We are not going to have a consulate there. There will not be diplomats on the ground in Afghanistan, uh, at least for the time being. And that means we're going to have to use other channels. 
Uh, we can go through other countries that have embassies there. We can go through other countries that are talking to the Taliban. And we're going to be using our allies in the region, relying heavily upon them in order to communicate with people in Afghanistan. So asking them to convey messages, asking them to argue for things on our own behalf, relying upon the Qataris, upon Saudi Arabia um, and other countries that are that are in that part of the world. Yeah, that's where it seems where they're setting up an office in Dohar, Qatar, yeah. which is 1,200 miles away. So, you know, that's going to be the difficulty there. And then obviously the big promise, right, getting people out. So how do you process visas and things like that without people on the ground? And, and I guess the U.S. hopes that some of the other surrounding countries will assume responsibility for getting the airport back up to be able to get people in and out now. There are no more commercial flights right now leaving Afghanistan. Um, there had been, prior to the Taliban collapse, commercial flights um, or the Taliban takeover, the, the government collapse. Um, and then, as most people know, the U.S. government military took over that airport and was pretty much controlling it until we left last week. And so now there's this hope that people are able to get this airport running again, that commercial airline companies that do fly in that region will resume flights um, and that people who want to leave will be able to do so peacefully. They'll be able to book a flight uh, and get on it and, and then make their visa applications once they land. We've been talking about this other topic for some time now. The recall effort for Governor Gavin Newsom in California is just a little over a week left to go. September 14th is the deadline for all of that. And we're trying to read the tea leaves here. Obviously, we've seen already some Initial ballot returns showing that Democrats are turning out in higher numbers than Republicans. There was a poll by Public Policy Institute of California that said 58% of likely voters surveyed oppose removing Governor Newsom from there. We've been talking about that enthusiasm gap. That's the big thing. The Newsom campaign needs to turn out younger voters and Latino voters to survive. That's right. You know, this is really just a turnout question. It's really about which party can get more people to show up. And you look at the way that California is conducting this election. It's a mail-in election, largely. Every voter has been mailed a ballot that they can then put in the mailbox and mail back. Um, that's supposed to sort of lower uh, the burden, the hurdle to get a vote in. And it also makes it difficult for pollsters because uh, people don't know how many of them are doing it. You can't stand at polling places and count people. Um, and so I think it's going to be a while before we know the answer, but definitely this hard push to get Democrats to turn out. Yeah. Conservative radio host Larry Elder is the leader uh, in, in uh, you know, trying to get elected if they remove Governor Newsom. He has uh, about 26 percent of people are going for him and anybody else compared to him. I mean, 5 percent for Kevin Faulkner, 3 percent for some of the other guys. I mean, so Larry Elder is in the lead with all of that. So. Like I said, just a little over a week to go. So we'll see what happens with all of that. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. What's interesting, you know, and the company won't say that as much, but if you talk to creators, you really do understand, especially during the pandemic, like, it really changed the culture around what porn means. Joining us now is Will Yakowitz, staff writer at Forbes. Thanks for joining us, Will. Thanks for having me, Oscar. OnlyFans has been in the news recently for a big flip-flop that they did. They came out and said that they were going to ban sexually explicit content on their app, which is a huge part of what they do on that app. 
only to reverse that policy change a week later. They were going to start that on October 1st, but it's not going to happen anymore. Obviously, OnlyFans, you know, it's an app where content creators can get subscriptions from their fans and and give them all the content that they want. They've been very successful at it. They have uh, 1.6 million creators, 150 million users. But when this flip-flop happened, other apps that deal in the same type of uh, in the same type of way were seeing blood. They were like, this is a chance for us to siphon off creators and users. And uh, it's kind of uh, had this big old effect in the market there. So, uh, Will, tell us what's going on. That's exactly it. You know, these competitors did smell blood and they were at the same time creators were jumping off the platform and also users like you know, customers, people who would subscribe to certain people, certain creators on OnlyFans were following creators who were leaving. So it was kind of this two-pronged thing that was was going down. And yeah, you you know, FanCentro, which is another competing platform, they said they saw 20,000 creators jump onto their platform within under a week. They they said four days after OnlyFans made the first announcement, said they were going to ban porn. So, you know, we had like a six day span where people thought only fans, you know, which is like if you talk to people who are on the platform and talk to people in the industry, they really estimate like 85 percent of the content is porn or explicit content. Right. So it it is like in many ways a house that porn built, <laughs> you know, only fans is like the most mainstream popular porn platform like What's interesting, you know, and the company won't say that as much, but if you talk to creators, you really do understand, especially during the pandemic, like it really changed the culture around what porn means and like what it is to do porn. And and it's not as shameful now. And not to mention, I mean, for these creators, right, you don't have to go the traditional porn route. Let's say you contract with a with a company and shoot scenes and all that stuff. You know, this is all content that these people were making on their own. They owned every part of that. And, you know, the money was there. $2.3 billion in 2020 is uh, what uh, was going around on OnlyFans. And OnlyFans only keeps 20% of what that is. The rest they pay out to their content creators. So for them, I mean, it's a huge source of revenue. And, you know, obviously there's several tiers, right? But the top people are earning millions of dollars possibly a month whenever it's going around. So, yeah, as you mentioned, as you mentioned, the kind of that the house that porn built, this is what happened here. So all these other platforms now saw that weakness and they're making that play because there's just a huge financial opportunity. Yeah. And these, these companies, like to be clear, you know, OnlyFans always had competitors. Jerry Seinfeld, second cousin, Evan Seinfeld, who, you know, if there's any thrash metal heads in, in the audience, he was the bass player and lead singer for Biohazard. He's had his platform, Is My Girl, for like four years. You know, Fancentro has been around since 2017. The list goes on, right? But really, the opportunity, like all these companies were doing their thing. And when the pandemic hit and only fans really got more and more popular, like um, Stan, one of the founders of Fancentro, told me like, one day, his top performers were just like, hey, sorry, OnlyFans is only taking 20%. You're taking 30 I'm going to just go with OnlyFans. Right. And what's interesting was once the porn ban came down, people started coming back. Stan said, like, people were like, hey, again, uh, you know, I'm coming back. But even still, you know, these, these platforms also made it more enticing. I think many vids, which is based in Canada, they offered 100% revenue to creators for until November. 
you know, and, and other platforms are doing 90. Tyga, who was, you know, obviously the, the hip hop artist and he was incredibly popular on OnlyFans, deleted his account and is launching his own platform that's going to only take 10%. So it's the kind of this arms race of like the traditional way of making porn is dead. Brad Armstrong, kind of a legendary, like classic porn movie director, told me during an interview he was retiring, but only, when he saw OnlyFans, he was like, oh man, this is like, yeah. we're dead. The porn film, the porn movie, shooting, obviously, COVID kind of, not kind of, COVID killed that business. And um, yeah, now with creators, in control of their own content. You don't have to go to a shoot. You don't have to give all these rights and more money than you need to, to other people. So yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's changed the game. It's, you know, for, for porn stars, let's say, and all the way to the regular person that wants to create this type of content, you know, it's available to them. So yeah, just get ready for more apps, for more platforms to start rising up and, and, um, wow. you know, if you, if you are a creator, you might be migrating. If you're a fan of people, you might be migrating over, you know, following them. Uh, it's just a, an interesting thing. They were so high for, and so strong for so long. This one little flip flop, as we mentioned, uh, other, pla- other competitors saw that blood and, and wanted to strike right away. So we'll keep looking at it. This Definitely. is a, an interesting shift, as you mentioned in this adult industry type of world and, and just for these platforms. It really is. And, you know, I I really do want to say the big creators get most of the attention, but really what's mostly overlooked is like the sex workers who are on this platform. Another thing OnlyFans and these platforms did, especially during the pandemic, was really become a safe haven for sex workers who could no longer do or, you know, obviously felt at risk doing in-person work during COVID, right? So, all of a sudden there was this platform that allowed you to change the way you work, you know, just like engineers started working from home, sex workers started working from home. And, you know, these platforms are often a lifeline for sex workers. So it's like, you know, I was talking to Mary Moody, who's a very successful webcam creator and she's on OnlyFans too. And she's kind of migrating to Peach, which is a a new platform because of all this. Something she said kind of put this all in perspective. It's like most of the people on OnlyFans are making a couple hundred bucks a month. And like that's so they can get some food and a phone and like sleep on their friend's couch. Yes, there's people making over a million, but the vast majority aren't. So what OnlyFans did the deplatforming and debanking of sex workers, you know, she saw this and everybody saw this who are in the industry as like occupational discrimination, if you will. So I think that's just a really important point. Like the big names, the big money is crazy, right? But to be clear, most people are making a couple hundred bucks a month. And those people are really just hustling to survive. Will Yakowitz, staff writer at Forbes, thank you very much for joining us. Yes, thank you, Oscar. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.